Hey there listeners, welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who aren't quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Ashvin, I've got Brian on the phone with me, and today we're going to be talking about the 2016 horror film, Ouija, Origin of Evil. This movie is written and directed by Mike Flanagan, and it stars Elizabeth Reeser, Annalise Basso, and Henry Thomas. In this prequel to the 2014 film, Ouija, a family who specializes in running seances have the tables turned on them when a Ouija board causes some issues. If you're new to the show, Brian and I are going to have a spoiler-free discussion up front. You'll hear a quick break where there will be some music playing, and then we'll come back, dive into the plot, hit some spoilers, and get into our review. Brian, uh, this is the first time you're seeing this film, right? This is my first time. How about you? I think so too. Yeah, I think it's my first time as well. Um, and I feel kind of bad because we're skipping out on the predecessor to this film, but it, you did some research and it sounds like we didn't really need to watch that one, huh? Well, our, our Discord friends who, who know more than us have told us that we can skip it. And I actually went ahead, I don't do this very often, and read the Wikipedia plot for that movie. And <laughs> um, I, I think it's cool we skipped it. We It's... it's it fleshes out the world a little bit, but we really didn't need to. I, okay. I think we're good. Okay, that's good I feel good to hear. more assured. Yeah, I mean, when, when you mentioned it, it had a 6% Rotten Tomatoes, uh, I'm glad we spared ourselves uh, that. Yes. I might go watch it at some point, but I don't, I'm glad we didn't try to do it for this. Yeah. Reading through the plot, did it feel like it was a 6% Rotten Tomatoes, or like does it seem like a somewhat interesting storyline? No, it actually seems somewhat interesting, probably because it, the story had a lot of connections to this story. So right. um, it, it was interesting to me, probably more so after having seen this movie. Yeah, I was also surprised uh, because it sounds like in the inception of this film, uh, Jason Blum, he did want something that departed from that film. But when you look at the financials for that film, uh, so yeah, sure, it's got a 6% Rotten Tomatoes. But financially, it did pretty well. I, I think it made like 186 million or some some hundred something million. So definitely uh, surpassed this one revenue wise. So I was surprised they wanted to move away from it so much. Yeah, it had 103.6 million on a five to eight million dollar budget. So ah, okay, yeah, that's a pretty great return. Um, and this movie didn't do this movie did very well, but it was a higher budget at nine to twelve million, and it made. 81.7 million at the box office. So right. it, it cost a few million dollars more and it made 20 million less. Yep. Yeah. So were you surprised then that like they would have wanted to move away just based on the critical re reception, I imagine? I think that was it. I mean, 6% on Rotten Tomatoes is pretty darn low and 24% for users. So nobody really seemed to be a big fan of that movie. I guess. But if you look at who's behind this film, uh, Jason Blum, Michael Bay, those two guys don't really strike me as the type that care about critical uh, reception or reviews versus box office performance. I think I know nothing about Michael Bay or really Jason Blum, to be honest, but I think they care. I think they want value attached to their name and their production companies. You've seen like Transformers? <laughs> no, I've I've actually not seen a whole lot of Michael Bay films. So. Okay, but yeah. I think you know they they want Michael Bay wants Platinum Dunes and Jason Blum wants Blumhouse to be associated with quality, so they don't want to 
make stinkers just because they did well at the box office. And there's a pretty big risk, we've seen it with other franchises, that the sequel can really drop off. If mm. if the first one sucked and people learn pretty quick that the next one's going to suck too, they're, they're not going to bother going. Right, right. You can get away with one stinker, but two stinkers, probably not. Yeah, right. And, and this one seems to have the opposite dynamic where your first film was a stinker and uh, here comes the second film, uh, supposedly a lot better, but I'm sure some of the box office uh, decline on this one is probably due to how bad the first one was, right? It could be. It could very well be. Yeah. And yeah, this one has an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes for critics and uh, only 57 users. So. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, this is our... We've now seen every... Mike Flanagan feature-length horror film, oh my and God. discussed together a lot of it before the podcast. But we've we called each other up and discussed each one of his films. Wow! So we've completed his full uh, filmography on on films. That's amazing. Well, not his whole filmography, but his whole horror filmography. He has a few non-horror films that we haven't seen. Oh, really? Indeed. Yeah, yeah. But do you want to guess what we give? What we rate the average Mike Flanagan film? Hmm. Um, I feel like they've been, yeah, kind of all over the board. It's like, uh, and especially for both of us, uh, especially like things like Dr. Sleep, I know we're kind of on different ends. Uh, I don't know. So like average, you're talking about like average combined average? Like the average, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Sure. Uh, the average for each one of us. I, I tend to think you like Flanagan more than I do. Yeah, yeah. I, I would guess maybe you're at like... I, yeah, I'd guess we both are maybe close to like a three, three and a half. What, what, what is it? Yeah, I'm actually at a 3.2 and you're at a 3.1. Wow. Okay. So you're just slightly ahead, huh? And dragging you down is the, and I cannot <laughs> believe this. I was looking back at our scores. You gave Dr. Sleep a one. Yeah. <laughs> a one. You gave Last yeah. House on the Left a 1.5. You gave Flanagan's Before I Wake, which was quite frankly a stinker to me, and you gave that a two point five, yeah. one and a half points higher than Doctor Sleep. <laughs> You're still hanging on to Doctor Sleep. It makes no sense that you gave it a one. I think yeah. if you saw that again today, you'd give it a higher score. You think so? You I, were in a real big phase the first year or two of the podcast where. You needed a horror film to be a straight-up horror film, and you deducted points when it wasn't. And I think you've gotten away from that. You've, mm. I agree, I think yeah. you still want that, but you've, you've eased up on that in your rating scale, or you've been worn down because we watch so many that aren't straight-up scary. You yeah. want a scary horror film. Sure, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. When we started, like, yeah, it was, uh, horror films, like, for me, like, if it's not scary, like, how are you calling this horror? But I think I've come to appreciate other elements of it. Though, I don't know, man, still Doctor Sleep, I don't feel like my issue was that it wasn't scary. I feel like there was something else going on there, but uh, I, I forget. I gave that a one, and you, did you give that, like, a four or five? I gave it a four, yeah. Okay. And but our collectively... F- our collective favorite is Hush. Okay, from yeah. 2016. We both gave it a four. I know. I really want to visit that one and uh, revisit Oculus as well sometime. But um, he's not uh, in terms of like episodes we've put out. Um, what is this like our third or fourth Flanagan film? This is only the third we've done an episode on. Okay. We did Doctor Sleep in 2019, and we did Absentia just a few months ago, back in January. Okay. What's what's your take on Flanagan? I mean, I, I guess we know where we stand from a score perspective pretty close, but like it sounds like you generally like him more than not. I generally like him. I think his biggest errors are like an over-sentimentality and a cheesiness. 
yeah. hokiness to him that uh, can drag some of his movies down. To mm-hmm. me, that was the most notable in Before I Wake from 2016 and Gerald's Game from 2017. So those are my two lowest rated from him. Oh, man, I really like Gerald's Game. I thought that was really uh, clever. Yeah, you gave you love Gerald's Game. You yeah. gave that a 4.5. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was a great premise. Hey, was that actress in this film? That wasn't the no, same. No, she was not. Okay. But let me tell you something about Mike Flanagan. Yeah. He has a type. Oh, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he does, man. L- look at, like, if you're listening and you can safely check your phone, don't do it while you're driving, or your computer, if you pull up images on IMDb or wherever of Elizabeth Reeser, who's in this movie, Kate Siegel, who's in a ton of his stuff, and Carla Gugino, who's also in a ton of his stuff, <laughs> and... That he's married to, and then pull up a picture of Courtney Bell from Absentia that he has a child with. Oh. They all have a very specific look. Like brunettes. They look very similar. Yeah. Like like dark hair, similar hairstyle. Dark hair, similar features. Yep. And I mean Elizabeth Reeser, Kate Siegel, and Carla Gugino play sisters in uh, the Haunting of Hill House, but oh. he worked with all of them before that movie, so you can't just say, "Oh, he cast them because they looked like." He had worked with all of them before. Yeah, and Courtney Bell very early on in his career with Absentia. So, right, the, right. the man has a type. He does. He definitely has a type. I think he has that style that you talked about, which I, I agree. Like those are kind of his uh, some of his flaws and strengths. Um, and, uh, I think the other thing that I kind of like didn't appreciate in a lot of his earlier movies, it feels like very white. Like, I don't, I don't know how else to describe it, but, uh, I don't feel like you brought a minority into any of his stuff until like the haunting of Hill House or Bly Manor or whatever, one of those. Um, I, I, I just feel like, uh, there's something like very like, uh, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I guess white about his, his cast and films. Hmm. Do you, do you, yeah. That's, sense? that's fair. I yeah. mean, I wouldn't be surprised if if we started analyzing a lot of the directors we've discussed, and we'd be like, "Oh shit!" Well, everybody's real white. That's true. Um, yeah, especially. But like- you're right. You're right. Um, Flanagan specifically. Yeah. And he yeah. keeps things. T- I mean, family drama and family dynamic is the name of his game. So yeah, they're white families. That's no excuse. I mean, you can get a more diverse set of characters in there one way or another. But yes, right. yes. He yeah, is very but- white. Good point. Sure, yeah. Yeah, but I, I think you're right. The last few years, uh, he's definitely changed that. Um, and yeah, if you look at a lot of horror films, 2015, earlier, I'm, I'm sure that's kind of like the dynamic you see anyway in this genre. So that, yeah. that makes sense. Um, um, actually, you know, Dr. Sleep has a um, a main character who's black. Yeah, but what, what year was that? Like 2018, 19? 2019. Yeah, so I feel like he just like in the last like two, three years, someone probably like tapped on the shoulder and was like, hey, maybe add, add someone who isn't white in the cast. I mean, in his, in his defense, everybody he casts looks like Carlo Gugino. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You, uh, he, he's stuck. Would you put that actress from Dr. Sleep, the one that wears the hat, in that category? Because I feel like she kind of also looks like those three, unless she is one of those three. I think you could put her in. And <laughs> no, she's not. <laughs> uh, God, her name escapes me right now, though. But yeah, she, she's a... Uh, she is tangentially look looks like those. Right. Not exactly, but yeah, sure, similar type. Right, right. Yeah, he's got a type. And I, th- I think uh, his films also have like a similar lighting style uh, that I-, I think you can tie a lot of his films together from like a production standpoint. Yeah, there is a there is a look and feel to a Mike Flanagan film. And part of that is because he works 
with the same set of people over and over again. Not only does he have a type, but he he casts the same actors in his stuff no matter what. Like mm-hmm. Annalise Basso, who plays the older sister in this film, in, in Ouija, Origin of Evil, was in Oculus. Henry Thomas, who plays Father Tom, was in Midnight Mass, The Haunting of Bly Manor, Doctor Sleep, The Haunting of Hill House, and Gerald's Game. Uh, a lot of these faces you'll also see in his upcoming TV series, Fall of the House of Usher. Hmm. His Actually, you didn't mention it at the top. You said written and directed by Michael Flanagan, and that's true, but he also wrote this with Jeff Howard, right? who's worked on uh, Oculus Before I Wake, Gerald's Game, and The Haunting of Hill House, and Midnight Mass with him. Yeah. Uh, who else? Yeah, like Elizabeth Reeser. She's in some a lot of his stuff, so is Kate Siegel and Carla. Mm-hmm. And then his cinematographer was Michael Fimignari, who also filmed Oculus, Before I Wake, Gerald's Game, Doctor Sleep, The Haunting of Hill House, Midnight Mass, and The Midnight Club, which is an upcoming show of his. The production yeah. designer he worked with, Patricio M. Farrell, did a lot of his stuff. He edits all his own stuff, so... Anyway, yeah. I'm rambling, but there's a reason every Mike Flanagan film feels very much like a Mike Flanagan film. Sure, yeah. And I, that's that's a big part of it. But he also, he chooses similar stuff. Like, it's often period pieces. It's almost always a family drama. The score, the Newton brothers scored this, and they've scored a lot of his stuff. It's often very, like, solemn piano pieces. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and his TV, his three TV series, mm-hmm. uh, The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor, and the upcoming The Fall of the House of Usher, they're all ada- adaptations of classic Gothic horror literature. Like, oh. The Haunting of Hill House was a 1959 Shirley Jackson novel. The Haunting of Bly Manor is a rough adaptation of The Turn of the Screw from 1898 by Henry James and The Fall of the House of Usher is a short story written by Poe in 1839. Sure. Wow, I didn't So he's just like doing, he's got in that groove, you know, and uh, no hate thrown his way, but yeah, Yeah. he's got a style. Just like he's got a type in women, he's got a type in in movies. (laughs) In movies, yeah, yeah, it kind of spreads all over. That's an interesting one because a lot of directors do that, right? Like they'll work with similar people over projects, you can tie things together. Um, something though about him and like how many similarities there are with all of like his work, uh, sometimes makes me wonder like, is he just kind of like recreating the same film or the same thing over and over again? And as an artist, like, do you get tired of doing that and not doing something different? Um, like when when do you push the envelope a little bit? Right, exactly. Yeah. And I wonder too, if people will get a little, I think very much things are coming up Flanagan lately, like these TV series especially have like rocketed him into pop culture awareness. Oh yeah, I do wonder if there's a uh, saturation point with his his stuff, and he might need to change it up. Hush is the biggest uh, like step outside of his box to me. Exactly right. Uh, yeah, which is you know, and that's the one we've given the best score to. So yeah, I know. And, and not that's... that he he can't do well with his uh, his formula and and in his own comfort zone and wheelhouse but uh he can do really well when he steps out of that too so i wouldn't mind seeing him do that more yeah i think he might need to i think so too yeah and, and that's why like i still remember hush fondly because i feel like we've seen all these other films and there's like a high level of repetition thematically story-wise but hush is still like the standout kind of gem where that's like more of a straight up home invasion movie so uh yeah would would love to see him like kind of try something different uh soon 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think another big thing that makes him feel very Flanagan is like the dramatic soliloquies and <laughs> over sentimentality. And I wonder, I got to believe a good chunk of that is him, but I wonder how much um, Jeff Howard, his, his co-writer on a lot of this stuff is responsible for that. Yeah. I didn't check. Is, is Jeff Howard also tied to other projects? Yep. Yeah, he also has writing credits on Oculus, Before I Wake, Gerald's Game, The Haunting of Hill House, and Midnight Mass. Wow. Okay. Yeah, those are big ones. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're, you're you're right. Like he's his stock is like pretty high right now. But I think people loved Midnight Mass. Uh, I'm I'm surprised. I, so it sounds like he's putting out two more shows this year. Uh, he is like kind of like running full throttle at this point. Yeah. Yeah. His upcoming shows are uh, The Fall of the House of Usher, and then something called the Midnight Club, which is about a group of terminally ill patients that gather to share scary stories. Hmm. Oh, interesting. That's different than his normal TV in that it's not a miniseries from what I understand. Like, it okay. sounds similar to Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yeah, that's kind of cool. He created it and directs a few of the episodes, but they, there are episodes directed by other people. Okay, nice, nice. So, And yeah. that could be a step out of his comfort zone to a degree. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, you know, like if it's like short stories and stuff, that could be very interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot on Flanagan and, uh, but yeah, he's, he's a machine and even the year this came out, I think he had two other films in the same year. So, uh, he's definitely a, a busy dude. And, um, I saw, speaking of like his type, um, his wife, Kate Siegel was casted in this, but I, I don't remember seeing her. Did do you? She is the blonde woman at the very beginning. At the the film starts with a seance, oh. of like an older man trying to contact his deceased wife, and his daughter is there, his yep. adult daughter. Yep. She's got blonde hair, and uh. normally she has dark hair, obviously, because <laughs> yes. she's married to Mike Flanagan. But exactly. <laughs> that's that might be why we didn't recognize her. I didn't either until I saw her name in the credits. Ah, okay, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cool. Yeah. Um, another fresh talent here I thought was Lulu Wilson. Uh, I hadn't, you know, I couldn't place her. I know she's done like some other horror films, Annabelle Creation. She was in Haunting of Hill House. Um, but are you familiar with her? I mean, I, I thought she was kind of a standout person here. Yeah. I mean, she, I recognized her from Haunting of Hill House, but she did a, give a really good performance in this for sure. Yeah. She's an up and comer. Yeah. Right. She's pretty big on the horror scale. Um, oh, go ahead. I got a rag on you a little bit. Okay. You picked another PG-13 movie. Ah, no way. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, this is PG-13. Oh, man. That explains, like, why there wasn't any blood or anything. Or Yeah, shit. I love that. I can't remember what episode you went on a rant about PG-13 horror and how you didn't think there was much of a place for it, and then you continued to pick, like, two or three more. Damn. I wish <laughs> Netflix would, like, tell you that uh, before you watch stuff. <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally missed the, the PG-13, uh, rating thing, but that, that explains a lot now. Thanks. Thanks for calling that out. Right. Right. I think sometimes, uh, what we like and what we think we like are, are sometimes quite different for, for all of us, not just you. <laughs> are you giving me like a, a Mike Flanagan speech here? <laughs> exactly. I, I've just stepped off to the side of the Absolutely. set and I'm gazing up vaguely yeah. towards the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, but I I'm think this to... this shows your preference for like supernatural stories because PG thirteen PG thirteen horror lends itself to supernatural things. Why? Because like you don't have like the stabbing or, or like the gore necessarily. I exactly. You're not gonna have many PG thirteen slashers. Yeah. 
No one ever rates something R because it's too scary? Um, I don't think there are many instances of that. I know we've discussed moments where the MPAA wanted to do that, and the director, I can't, I feel like we had this specific instance, and the director was like, no, like, there's nothing in here for R. Hmm. I know we've talked about that scenario before, but I don't think it happens all that often. Okay, yeah, yeah, I know what film that was. I mean, they they can. The MPAA has no, nothing is set in stone. They do whatever they feel like. Okay, okay, got it. Um, so, sure, they could say R because it's just that scary, but I feel yeah. like they usually don't. Right, right, okay. Yeah, no, I, I guess you're right. Yeah, this one plays by the rules, which makes sense. I mean, it's mostly centered around a family, so I guess, yeah, it never really got graphic or language was reasonable throughout. Shit. Yeah. That's a bummer. All right, um, well, oh, go ahead. Do you, have you noticed, too, speaking of, like, supernatural horror... It feels like in the past decade or two, the Possession film and the Haunted House film have kind of blended together. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, not like, many films where it's like just one or the other. Yeah, I mean, I am under... I, I have not seen a whole lot of Possession films. Like, I haven't seen many The Exorcist knocks, knockoffs or like films in the genre that The Exorcist birthed in 1973. Mm -hmm. And the Haunted House movies from back then, and from even well before then, they have malevolent spirits, and they'll sometimes, those spirits will influence members of the household to do nefarious things, like in the Amityville Horror or The Shining or Burnt Offerings. Yeah. But once you get to, like, 2007's Paranormal Activity, you actually see... Not only the the person being influenced, but like they're very clearly possessed, right? And, right. And they they hit on some of the tropes that The Exorcist started, and then yeah. I think that gets finalized in The Conjuring in 2013, and now they're just kind of in step. Yeah. Do you think um, it's to thwart the common criticism that if you're in a haunted house, like just go to a hotel and you're fine? That's actually a really good point. Yeah, I mean, there's an easy out. That's a frustration of viewers and has been for decades. Like, just get out of the fucking house. Yeah, and right. like we've talked about in the past, like in the Conjuring episode, there's usually a convenient financial reason. That that happens in Con The Conjuring. It happens in Sinister. Although in Sinister, they actually do leave the house. Mm. Um, it, it's in the Amityville Horror, but... I, yeah. that's, a, that's a good point. They might put that there for that reason. I also yeah. think a possession film, The Exorcist is Reagan in bed. You can only do that so many times, so you got to add a new element to the mm -hmm. possession film, and so I think they just dovetail pretty perfectly together. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, that ends up working pretty well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, that is so true. I wonder if we'll ever see like another uh, haunted house film again. I can't remember like the last one where they would have gone somewhere and that place was haunted not necessarily the people any can, can you think of like a recent one? Oh boy I, I mean, i'm like sure a, there are recent ones but yeah yeah i can never grab things off the top of my head very easily when we're recording yeah 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 i'm, I'm sure there there are fewer uh yeah no, really, really good point though tumbleweed in my brain <laughs> yeah i know um but yeah i mean like th this film oculus kind of deals with like haunted objects not necessarily like a house uh, potentially right. haunted objects or something, yeah. Right, and you know, that has its own convenient ways for them not leaving the area. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. They, they go, I mean, it's almost like the cell phone thing in modern horror movies. Like you have to find a way around the people not just leaving the source of the haunting. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah. Hard to keep up with modern times. Um, exactly. I think, uh, oh, in general, speaking of haunted items and things, uh, Ouija boards, I think we've talked about these before, but you ever play with one? No, and I don't believe that they can actually do anything, but at the same time, I probably never will play with one because I just <laughs> feel like, why risk it? I guess, yeah. Why tempt it? Uh, I thought the history of these boards are interesting. It sounds like it was kind of like spurred by the American Civil War. Like after that happened, they, these kind of blew up in popularity. And um, there's been like some research around like how it's like subconsciously driven by uh, your, your muscle memory or something or like things that you like involuntarily want to uh, go for. So I think it's an interesting phenomenon. Well, I don't even know if it's a phenomenon, but whatever people are doing with it, it's an interesting idea. It is. It really is interesting. I, I'm curious about it, but at the same time, I'm like, yeah, I better just stay away. <laughs> that and like uh, talking into a mirror. Um, what, what else? What, what else is oh, on? Oh yeah, like... I'll, I'll do Candyman or, or Bloody Mary. Probably oh. not right now by myself, but uh, yeah. If if you gave me a few drinks and dared me, I'd go do it. <laughs> I don't know if I'd feel safe in the house with someone like doing a, a Ouija board or the Candyman. Right. Or yeah, I would come out of the bathroom and be like. Osh? Yeah, I'm not here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There's something, something spooky about this stuff. But, you know, we it kind of came full circle here because we talk about how the Possession film merged with the Haunted House film in the 2000s, and uh, Reagan became possessed in The Exorcist by playing with a Ouija board. She it's did. kind of a throwaway moment of the movie, but uh, th- I think that's how it happened. Is that how it happened? I, I totally forgot. I, is that what happens at the beginning of The Exorcist? I'm pretty sure it's just a scene towards the beginning of the movie where they're in the basement and she just like happens to mention she was playing with a Ouija board and found mm. a friend named Captain Howdy or whatever. Oh, Forgive wow. me, everyone. I'm not as obsessed with The Exorcist as some horror fans, so I might be getting some things wrong. But she yeah. definitely plays with a Ouija board and it's mentioned in the movie. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Wow. I thought it was like food poisoning from that party that her mom threw or something. And then oh, when she, she peed her pants? Yeah, when she peed her pants in front of everyone. So that, uh, you think the entire catalyst for her possession was food poisoning? And that's the one thing I remember, yeah. Okay. That's how it started. And then it just I'm went quietly from... jotting things down in a notebook with a disapproving look on my face. <laughs> mm-hmm. Then it just got it got worse, worse from there. Like, uh, yeah, so, something happened at that party or something. I, yeah, I'm also, I to, totally blanking on a Ouija board. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Um, well, cool. Any other... Uh, oh, I, the other thing I think is interesting here is... Uh, I So this is kind of like a period piece, as you mentioned before, he likes to do those. And I think it's really cool that they actually use like technology from the 70s and you can like see like the dots at the top right. Uh, did, did those jump out to you while you're watching the film? Yeah, those did. I, I thought it was like the film popping, but then in researching, I realized they're cue marks. I mean, they're not real cue marks in this case, but... yeah. In the past, there were cue marks on the top right corner of the screen. They look like small black circles, and they were used to tell the film projectionist that it was time to switch to the next reel of film. Yeah, right. Which is kind of wild. Yeah, so they went so far as to include those in this this movie. I mean, maybe the film that they were using had those. I don't know how you if you create those or if they're just on the film that you purchase. So uh, yeah. I'm a little ignorant on that front. 
And that's a good point. I mean, they talk about using technology from there. I, I can't imagine like they uh, would have like, uh, yeah, put this on film and like um, had like projectionists having to do that right at a theater. I, I feel like they must have like. No, I'm sure. I guarantee it wasn't projected that way. But yeah, I don't know if it was in the film that they purchased or if they had to like put add that it in post or what. Yeah, yeah, that was a cool touch though. Yeah. Um, did you notice the Universal logo at the beginning of the movie? It was It's the one they used from 1963 to 1990. Oh, no, I didn't catch that. That's awesome. Yeah, it had a nostalgic feel when it came on the screen. Oh, that's really cool. That's yeah, really neat. Yeah, it was neat. fun. Yeah, they really committed to that uh, that that era. Um, well, cool. Any, any other background? The only thing I have left is the Ohio Connection, which, as always, comes from our friend Alex, who owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. If you're in the area, you got to swing by for some drinks and food. We are still waiting for a listener to say that they've actually gone there. So please, please just do it. And Alex <laughs> says, Ouija Origin of Evil is a supernatural horror film and prequel to the 2014 film Ouija. This film centers around a widow and her family who introduce a Ouija board into their phony seance business, thereby inviting a spirit that possesses the youngest daughter. Going back over a hundred years, spiritualists in the U.S. believed that the dead were able to contact the living and reportedly used a talking board very similar to a modern Ouija board at their camps. Ostensibly, this method was intended to enable faster communication with spirits. As reported by the Associated Press in 1886, these spiritualist camps and thus the origins of the Ouija board were located throughout the state of Ohio. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That is uh, pretty cool that our state's history is tied to Ouija boards. Also, you can say Ouija or Ouija, apparently. So. Oh, okay. They both uh, work, according to uh, the Webster's Dictionary. You know what the origin of that word is? Is it like a... Um, like what? It's, it's not like Latin, is it? Oh, God. I read it, and now I forget it. Well, actually, it's a little bit like... Uh, Unknown. Some people say what it means, what they think it means, and it's not quite. Nobody's quite sure if that's the true meaning. But mm. the common thing is that it's a combination of the words "yes" in French and German, I believe. Oh, oh my like god! And yeah, and Josh, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know okay. if that's true. And then there's another story that like the board said that was its name when the creator asked it. So oh, it, nice. it's all probably kind of apocryphal and, and may not be true. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> That's a good origin story. <laughs> great. All right. Well, cool. Yeah, great, great connection there. And uh, yeah, really interesting, fascinating about Ohio's uh, history with Ouija, Ouija boards. Indeed. All right. Well, uh, yeah, should, you ready to dive into the plot, hit some spoilers and review the film? Let's do it. All right, cool. Hey, before we do that, do you, do you mind if we take a quick break? I, I just want to check an answer to something we were talking about earlier, and then uh, I'll, I'll call you right back. Hmm. All right, man. That that sounds all right. Okay, cool. Thanks. I'll be right back. Cool. Hey Brian, sorry about that. I, uh, I I just had to check my Ouija board for uh, something we were talking about earlier. Um, so it turns out you're wrong about Doctor Sleep. That movie does suck. 
I asked, <laughs> I asked the Ouija board, and it confirmed that. There's definitely some subconscious muscle movement going on in that one. I don't think so. I, I think that one was legit. I think one of the other things you hated that you were trying to think of was Rose the Hat's hat. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we see a theme where prominent hats mean a, a negative, a, a poor score for Moshfin. <laughs> Dr. Sleep I mean, and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street are the threads that tie that that logic together. Can we just say universally for everyone, hats are like a never like, like when have you seen a hat and had a positive reaction to a hat? I wear a hat all the time when well, I'm like, outside. Like, well, you're talking about like a baseball hat though, right? Yeah, yeah, baseball hat. I, I got to protect the skin on my bald head. Yeah, baseball hats all the past time. That's very functional and very common. But the second you like go beyond that or like a knit cap, then you're like making a statement. And if you're like in a horror film wearing one, then like, you know, yeah, you're, you're pulling away from the horror. And now like the conversation becomes all about a hat, right? Man, oh man, how are we? How, I didn't think we'd get here on hats again. <laughs> it was Rose the Hat, though. <laughs> it was I, Rose the Hat. You you said she was dressed like Cheryl Crow, and you got all angry yeah. about it. <laughs> she was. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I'll, I got to watch that in Nightmare on Elm Street again, and I'll try to ignore the hat. And uh, pretty sure the Ouija board will still agree with me though on on those films. When we uh, meet up in person pretty soon, I'm going to get you so drunk that you pass out and I'll sew a hat to your head. <laughs> All right. All right, man. That sounds good. Cool. <laughs> okay. I'll be a permanent addition. All right. Well, yeah, let's jump into the plot here. Um, so this movie kicks off with the scene of the seance that's going on. Uh, it's going on at this woman uh, whose name is Alice at her house. She's leading the seance. She's a widowed mother of two, and she's consulting an elderly man and her daughter. We get some decent suspense in this seance uh, as this dead wife reveals herself to the man. Uh, but after they leave the house, we learn that the whole thing was a staged production and Alice's two daughters kind of helped orchestrate it and do all the spooks and blow out candles. Um, what'd you think of this setup and the, and the characters, uh, the, the, the whole era, what would you think of the setup here? I liked it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I mean, like we discussed right away, you can get the sense this is a typical Flanagan film with the like lighting and staging and cinematography, but, uh, it's enjoyable. And, and so how I feel about this opening scene is kind of how I feel about the movie as a whole. It's nothing new. It's nothing totally out of the haunted house realm. Um, but it's effective and it's well done. I, yeah. I, thought, I think it's fun. What did you think? Yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely nothing new. But uh, I think there is like some decent suspense building and uh, short little scares. And then I think you're immediately kind of bought into the relationship of or at least I was bought into the relationship of Alice and her two kids. Like they just had like a great family dynamic and uh, I, I kind of like was bought into them really quickly. So uh, how, how did you feel about those three? I agree. I do think they had a good dynamic. He, I mean, he can go too far with it, but he writes good characters. He writes good relationships and you do get attached to the characters. Precocious yeah. Children, I think, might be another Flanagan hallmark when he does oh. have kids in his movies. Yeah, and I feel like that's annoyed us sometimes in the past, right? We did not like the... I didn't like the kid from Before I Wake. Right. Yep. Yeah, I was, I was a little... I, I felt like uh, Dorson, this one, is a, is a step up from that kid. Uh, oh, that, for sure. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, so, to further build out her repertoire, 
repertoire. Repertoire? You you can do it. Is, <laughs> is that too many R's? Repertoire? Uh, no, you're good. Oh, repertoire. cool. Okay. So to further build out her repertoire, Alice uh, decides to buy a Ouija board. While she's testing it out and she's asking it some questions, we see that something possesses Doris, her youngest daughter, who's upstairs. And Doris starts responding to the questions that Alice is asking the board downstairs. But you can tell she's kind of possessed and not really aware of what she's doing. Later that night, Doris comes down and tries the Ouija board herself and communicates with spirits that are in the room that we can't see. So uh, a few nights later, Doris reveals to her mother and sister that she can communicate with her dead father and she's able to prove it to them by answering certain questions that only the father would have known. Alice gets really excited by this and decides to incorporate Doris into the family business and they start consulting with a number of customers and uh, help them connect with dead relatives. Uh, what do you think of this turn of events and um, Alice's and, and the daughter's reaction to this? I really like the setup that they are. I mean, them being mediums and having a seance business feels typical horror, but the fact that it's fake and a hoax is a bit of a spin, but then it gives the characters heart that they really truly feel like they're helping people with it. And mm -hmm. then to have all that be the setup and have the daughter be able to actually do it all of a sudden is cool. I, I think it's a cool way for the plot to go. Yeah. It may not be mind-blowing and original, but it works. I, I think he's painted the family picture that uh, is necessary to make this plot succeed going forward. Like sure. He's given it legs to stand on. I think so, yeah. And I think you, you point out something good there. Like, I, I, what's uh, kind of unique to Flanagan, uh, yeah, we're, you know, a half hour into this movie or whatever. I think you have a good balance of humor, some horror, good scares. Uh, you've got uh, family uh, drama with, like, you know, knowing the dad is dead and kind of like where these people are, kind of like at a place of loss. And there's like some heart in it uh, as well. So I, I think the, all those combinations together is like a, a unique Flanagan kind of thing and, and maybe what like puts him above maybe other horror film directors at this point. I agree. And when they were writing it, it sounds like they tried really hard to make at least the first like 30 to 40 minutes succeed on its own with almost no horror. So Yeah, right. And I, I think they did that. Yeah, I think it works. Uh, unfortunately, though, these uh, good vibes, uh, they start to die down. One night, Doris has this pain in her neck, and while she's looking in a mirror, she gets attacked by this demon who goes into her mouth and possesses her. Um, at school the next day, or a few days later, she starts to act a little sinister. There's this pair of bullies that are about to shoot with the slingshot, and she turns and looks at them, and they basically turn the slingshot around and shoot themselves. I, I thought that playground scene was, was really cool, but what did you think of like the transformation of Doris here into this kind of evil possessed uh, little girl. I thought it worked really well and to um, what's the actress's name? Uh, Lulu? Lulu Wilson's credit who plays Doris. She did not play this like your standard creepy little kid. She was much more subtle with it and that made it a lot more ominous. Yeah, yeah. She really pulled it off. Uh, I couldn't tell if it was like the, the hairstyle or like the, her facial expressions. I mean, it was, it was creepy and it like wasn't overdone at all. There was just a cold blankness to the way she performed the character, and it really worked. It reminded me of The Omen in some ways. Mm, yeah. Which yeah. is a movie we should really cover on this podcast. The classic or the remake? 
the classic. Okay, yeah, we probably should. Um, what did you think? One when, when, uh, negative point I had here, the demon that we see. Um, yeah, I feel like Flanagan always kind of fucks up when it comes to like uh, monsters and stuff, but I thought the CGI looked kind of shoddy. What, what did you think? When the, you see the like black demon behind her? Yeah, in the mirror. Yeah, you know, I didn't think that looked great either. It was played by a person, um, Doug Jones, but mm. there had to have been some CGI when he like reaches down her throat. So yeah, and that's one thing about this movie. I don't even know if it's a negative for me, but they they tout that they tried to stick to 1970s filming techniques and using that equipment and stuff, but then. You use some CGI over top of it, it kind of undermines the effort a little bit there. Mm. Um, yeah. Didn't look great. It, it's, it didn't ruin the moment. Uh, it, well, actually, the, the specific moment may have been slightly ruined by it. Um, yeah, because yeah. I think the, the demon even says something like, it's not a game or it is a game and then or, or something, right? Uh, I can't remember what it says. Oh, I, I think it says something, but yeah, yeah, they, it kind of like uh, detracts from the moment a bit, uh, which, you know, I mean, I feel like she's doing a great performance, but then, yeah, you have that element, which kind of dilutes I rem- it. I feel like I remember it whispering in Doris's ear, how many R's in repertoire? <laughs> That's what it was. That's what she's like trying to find out the whole movie. That's the whole point of the movies. <laughs> yeah. How many R's in repertoire? <laughs> uh, good one. All right. Uh, so Lena finds a note. Lena's uh, Doris's older sister. She finds a note written in Polish that's in Doris's room, and she gives it to this father who works at the school. He translates it, translates it, and rushes over to the house and uh, takes Lena and Alice aside and lets them know that the note is written from the perspective of a Polish guy who was tortured and killed in that house. And it reveals that in the house, a number of people were killed and murdered and tortured. And there are all these dead bodies in the spirit that are now being channeled. Or sorry, there are a number of dead spirits in the house that are now being channeled through Doris. Was that, was, did I get that right? Yeah, I think that was the gist of, of what was going on there. It's not super important. It, this is especially where the movie gets into fairly standard haunted house fare. Yeah. Um. But yeah, 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 I think that's the gist of it. Yeah, so you, to, to your earlier point, I mean, I, I got a little confused here because so is this a haunted house movie then, or was the Ouija board uh, haunted? I mean, like, or was that just like a vessel to uh, open the doorway into Doris's mouth? Yeah, the the house is haunted by the spirits that were wrongfully killed in the basement, and the Ouija board was a vessel to let them work through Doris, and now okay. now Doris. Doris has got it, and she she can't unget it. It's just like if you got asthma from something that was in your house, like some material <laughs> that basement. it was built with. You yeah. you still have asthma even when when you leave the house. Oh, okay, got it, got it. It's weird though, because like <laughs> I don't know why I chose I that analogy. I know that was kind of a downer. <laughs> yeah, that's strangely, slowly, subtly depressing. Yeah, exactly. Um. Oh, it's strange uh, because for years, like, we assume that she's been doing the seances where you have these candles that if you did have a bunch of ghosts in the house, they could have been communicating through that fake seance that was happening. So it's interesting that this Ouija board was the trigger 
that uh, opened up the gateway. It's all about the power of that Ouija board. Yeah, Hasbro. Is that the company that Go, makes it? Yeah, it's Hasbro. Hasbro, yeah. They, they nailed that. Um, yeah, Hasbro has like a production credit on the movie, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, so Doris, meanwhile, while they, these uh, people are all talking, she has taken Lena's boyfriend into the basement to uh, the secret hole that reveals like there, there's a bunch of bones like buried in this hole in the basement and she does this thing where her eyes turn white and she whispers into his ear we've seen her do that once before in the film too to uh lena um it's it's one of the scares that we see a few times in this film but after she does this the boyfriend i think goes upstairs and hangs himself and then the priest comes to find doris and she does the same thing to him he becomes possessed, grabs a knife, and goes after the mother and uh, older daughter, but uh, ends up not stabbing them. But then, I th- how does he die? He doesn't stab himself, right? He kind of gets thrown off to the side by her on the ceiling. Yeah, I think she like throws him down the steps and he breaks his neck. Okay, okay. If I so, remember correctly, but yeah, um, yeah, a lot was happening here, and I. I always enjoy when you do the plot summaries because I can just kick back and, and enjoy. <laughs> to the nonsense, yeah. Uh, yeah, so you got two dead people now. Um, so now the possessed Doris ties her mother up and gets ready to kill her with a knife. But Lena, who had gone upstairs for a minute, has this vision of her father telling her that she needs to sew Doris's mouth shut to stop the possession so Lena shows up in the basement, attacks Doris, and stitches her mouth closed while she's being, uh, while Lena is kind of being attacked by all these uh, demons. I, I, I thought these were CGI. What, what did you think? Yeah, I, it's all a blur to me at this point, but I believe so. Yeah. Um, so she's like, yeah, st- stitching Doris's mouth closed. Uh, and now that you said it was PG thirteen, now that, that it makes sense, because I was wondering why we don't see like any blood or gory kind of. Yeah, I'm stitching someone's lips together. Sure. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, so when Lena comes to, uh, Doris, oh, the, the mother, Alice, has woken up. She's uh, she's found Doris. Doris is dead, I believe. And then Lena becomes possessed and stabs her mother before becoming unpossessed and being like, oh, no, I stabbed my mother. And then... <laughs> Yeah, I, this is, I, I don't know, yeah, a lot happened here, like, random people being possessed, killing each other, and then I think at, in this part, Doris's body just kind of goes missing. Um, what did you think of, like, this whole scene and, like, what went down here? You know, it, it I feel bad reviewing this conclusion because I've just been like, yeah, I think that's what happened, and because it is a lot happening, and it's happening pretty quick. But I actually like that about it because a lot of the movie was pretty slow with the scares and the intensity. And then a lot goes on here and it happens. It's pretty grim. Like things you don't want to happen, happen. And this is the type of movie where you really expect the family to all come together in the end, uh, especially based on some of other Flanagan work, although he was darker earlier in his career with his endings, especially. Uh, so to see like the daughter die and then the other daughter kill the mom, it's it's grimmer than what I expected in a PG thirteen Flanagan film. Oh, okay. 
That's so interesting. I kind of appreciated that. It was just like, oh, damn. Yeah. That's that's interesting. I, I, the the grimness of it didn't hit me because I think it was PG thirteen, and so you don't see like the brutal stabbing of uh, her, like killing her mother. You don't see the brutal uh, um, uh, stitching of the lips. The the deaths of the priest and uh, the boyfriend are like pretty like PG. Yeah, you're right. Like like there's no blood. They just kind of like fall in the stairs, or one like hangs himself. So I, I kind of felt like that took away some of like what could have been a more shocking kill, but it sounds like it worked for you. It did work for me. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I uh, weirdly, I, you you seem to have some gripes about extreme gore in movies, but then also you're <laughs> ten, you tend to be the one who notices when it's not there more than I do. So <laughs> yeah. I, I was onboarded in this world, and I enjoyed the conclusion. It okay, is as clean and tidy as it was gore-wise. And what did you make of the father's ghost appearance? So they kind of debunked the idea earlier on that um, you know, like, these ghosts are there. They, they say, like, no, it's actually you have these ghosts in the basements, and they can read, like, the minds and basically uh, tell you, like, what you want to hear. So was their dead father there or not? I think their dead father was there. Okay. Hanging out with these other ghosts in the house? Uh, yeah, I mean, probably trying to avoid them. Like, <laughs> no. Staying in the I actually, room. I got something going on tonight. I won't make it to the party in the secret hole, but maybe yeah. next time. Yeah, got a lot of work to catch up on. I'll be upstairs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, well, that's interesting. Okay. Um, so then the movie ends now. We suddenly jump, and Lena is in a mental health facility. She's talking to a doctor. And the doctor wants to know what happened to Doris's body. Um, that body went missing; it was never found. And they remind her that she killed Alice. Um, but her mentality—you can tell. I mean, she's kind of in trauma, shock. She's a little bit—I um, don't know. Uh, she's not like really phased by like what they're saying there, and like you can tell, like she's emotionally or something kind of removed or blacked out those events somehow. Um, right. But the last shot is of Doris running on the ceiling towards the doctor with her eyes whited out and the movie ends there there was a did you see the post credit scene yes i did i did and the post credit scene is what ties this movie to well i mean the whole thing is tied to the first movie if you've seen the first movie you know how it's tied but it explicitly tells you essentially like it connects time wise timeline wise with the first movie Okay, yeah. That is yeah. supposed to be uh, Lena as an old woman at the very end. Oh, so, oh, yeah, I guess, like, the 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 other movie kind of takes place more in modern times then, and since this was in the 70s, this is... Uh, yeah, yeah, and I don't think this is a huge spoiler to say, especially for a movie that maybe not that many people will watch because it was so poorly reviewed, but Ouija, the 2014 film takes place in a house where in the same house where the events of origin of evil have already taken place oh okay so things are going very wrong in the house and to try to figure it out one of the children who lives in the house goes to visit Lainey in the institution where she's where she lives got it yeah so the last scene yeah. is like someone has she has a visitor basically yes yeah and Lena not Lainey excuse me yeah Lena right yep and that's that's how the movie ends. Then, uh, what did you think? Thoughts? Did you like it? What worked? Didn't work? I 
did really like it. I thought, like we said, Flanagan's strength is getting you to care about the characters. I cared. I was invested in the movie. This is one of those films where I feel like my review is kind of like vapid and empty because of the fact that I just kind of lost myself in the movie and I wasn't taking as thorough of notes as usual. And I think that's a credit to Flanagan's storytelling and and some of his subtlety with this one. Like, it's a generic ghost movie in a lot of ways. The plot points, especially towards the conclusion. But some of the restraint he chose to show and the other choices he made that were slightly different, just slightly than what we would have been seeing in a lesser haunted house movie, really held my attention and kept me on edge. Like... As an example, there is, and part of this is a credit to Lulu Wilson, there's a scene where she's talking to Lainey's boyfriend about what it feels like to be strangled. And she's just playing it really straight. She's like the typical horror movie kid saying something disturbing. But she's so straight and calm with her delivery, and the camera never cuts away the way she's saying it and keeping eye contact with him, you expect the camera to cut to him and see that he's like somehow being like telepathically strangled or telekinetically strangled. But they just stay with her and they're slowly zooming on her the whole time. And it just kind of got me. It made it all the more creepy and it just, it it made it more entrancing. It it kept my attention better than, I, I like wanted to cut back to him and see him like, feeling like he was strangled but right the fact that they didn't made me uh, more more focused on the movie and more interested in what else it had to do like totally what else yeah it would do. yeah that's a, that's a really good point uh because yeah that that scene totally sets you up to kind of expect that to be happening while she's describing it right yes yes that was, that was an interesting choice uh, yeah, you're right. He has these. He, he did some like really creative things there. Did you? I also uh, speak speaking about her and like how she was portrayed. Uh, we saw a lot of shots of her like where she's like just sitting on the couch, like looking at people from the couch, like from the back. Uh, I, I thought those every time I saw that, I thought that was such a great shot. Like her expression or just like seeing her eyes, pretty pretty cool. Yeah, there were a lot of shots where her eyes, like her irises and pupils, were gone. Oh yeah, um, but actually the. Which, again, standard fare, but they just did it a little bit better. The way the shot was framed, she was in the left side of the frame, and in the right side was Lainey letting her boyfriend in the door. So it Mm -hmm. starts out with a focus on the left side of the frame on uh, Doris, and she's just there with normal eyes or whatever. And then when the focus shifts to the background where Lainey and her boyfriend are, then you see an out-of-focus Doris, like, then you see Doris's eyes go away her irises and pupils disappear it's right it's right. out of focus which makes it more subtle and more creepy yeah yeah it does that really works uh really well that was, that was a really cool move on his part little stuff like that just showed he was paying attention to what he was doing and not just like painting painting by numbers with yeah. with the formula yeah right right some unique uh, shots there yeah and um, also like okay. in 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 defense of my own criticisms that this is standard fare, this was still a little bit early on in this formula that we would see get worn out over the 2010 decade. Like, you know, Insidious was 2011, I believe. The Conjuring was 2013. Those were the big ones that kind of kicked it off to me. 
and this was 2014, so it wasn't like we'd been beaten over the head with this stuff yet. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, wait, this film was 2016, right? Oh, shit, you're right. It was 2016. Okay, negate, forget everything I just said. <laughs> no, but it's interesting to compare. Like, you're putting it in that category because it's like supernatural, family-centric film. Yeah. I, yeah, it is like a Conjuring franchise movie to me. Yeah, yeah, no, it does kind of uh, align with that. And I don't know, like, uh, this is then kind of, I, I feel like these kind of movies aren't uh, being made, like that era is kind of over, right, of family horror uh, family horror, like family drama, certainly is not over. But this this era of haunted house trickery, I feel, is coming to an end. It mm. will always have a home on like Netflix movies that you just click on randomly one day. Yeah. Uh, but I think its prominence is is dying down for sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What I just do you say? I, uh, more more recent where I feel like uh, yeah it used to be every year you'd have like a big uh, movie or two that are, that are like this like some family moves somewhere or, like they're in a house and like someone's possessed or something haunting happening but with like the quieting down of like the um, conjuring insidious uh, franchises I wonder if that, that's kind of died down a bit recently I think so I think the time for paranormal movies is is kind of coming to an end or at least slowing down we're, I think we're more in like a Social horror slasher cycle type thing right now. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Interesting commentary on society. Uh, Oh, that's cool. They they generally liked it. And I I think, uh, I I feel you on not taking too many notes on this one because I I think the pacing kind of holds you well and you have like kind of separate parts of this film. Like the beginning is like this discovery phase uh, with likable characters as like good balance of humor and hearts and then like kind of uh, an excited phase in the middle where like, oh, she has this power and we can do things with it. And then like it slowly like kind of turns dark uh, in like subtle ways, as you mentioned, and, and like uh, never felt like it was being over like, yeah, I never felt like I was getting like over hit over the head with some of the horror here. Right. Right. And I think like, did you find it to be scary? Uh, yeah, there were scenes I, I thought were, that were pretty spookier, like images of like her uh, that like, yeah, I thought were like pretty haunting at least. Uh, what about you? I thought so too. I, I agree. And I think it's just, it was well-timed, that kind of stuff, like well-blocked and well-framed. And uh, the score, one thing Flanagan talked about in the commentary was that he tried to avoid the audio stings with the score, like the score having you oh, know, yeah. high strings as soon as there's a jump scare. And I, I think little stuff like that where he pulled back a bit really helped. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I was surprised that there wasn't more of that, uh, like a James Wan film or something. Right. They didn't have like as many like jump outs or anything, but uh, yeah, some co- cool stuff going on. There's some cool cinematography too. There's a moment, I think, when the priest first arrives at their house where the camera like goes through the car windows, like in one window and out the other, and then... Oh, that's like, cool. Yeah, it was just, just like some little neat tricks like that throughout. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. Um... I I was uh, less thrilled about uh, the ending. I thought it got clunky, and I wasn't really understanding like uh, is she still possessed or not? Uh, what happened to Doris's body? Um, uh, you know, are, are the are the demons still in that house? Which I guess they are, since we there's the other film. But uh, did you have any issues with that third act? No, but I I don't deny it didn't really come to my mind while I was watching it. I don't deny that they're there. 
But I just feel like they are par for the course with this genre of movie. Okay, just kind of like a, a lack of explanation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it is illogical. It, it's dealing with the illogical, so I don't always expect a lot of logic to it. That's true. It is supernatural. Um, Did you what, find it funny when? <laughs> so the the Laney's boyfriend hangs himself in the house. And he's just kind of hanging there. And then there's a point, God, Lena, her name is Lena. There's mm-hmm. a point where he like grabs somebody and like throws them up onto the second floor. He's like this oh, weird yeah. little like springy man. Like <laughs> bungees, he's, his dead down. body is possessed to like grab someone and like spring on his yeah. like bouncy hanging rope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of funny. That was kind of funny. It kind of silly. Another thing is uh, along that character. I think early in the film, he like when he first comes to the house, he's like, "Oh, this house has some nice bones." And I think when Doris attacks him as the oh. possessed demon, she's like, uh, "You're right. This house does have some nice bones." And like you see like actual bones. So like now this ghost is like a, a comedian, right? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess there were a couple of silly things. I yeah. also found it was silly and pretty unnecessary that the mom goes to this fancy dinner with the priest and she's like cleavage time city and they're like <laughs> weirdly flirting. It's it's yeah. very strange. Yeah, yeah. Um from like a character standpoint. Yeah, I just didn't I didn't buy into it for for either one of their characters. I didn't buy into it that the priest would propose them meeting at this fancy of a restaurant. I didn't buy into it that the mom would dress this way to meet him. It it just seemed strange. Yeah, uh, I I could see that, that being strange. I also thought it was strange how the mother, like once she realizes that Doris can communicate with the dead, uh, chooses to like keep her at home and work for the business rather than send her to school. She just didn't seem like that kind of mother that would like employ uh, her underage, like ever young daughter. Um, yeah, but, I mean, well, she already was employing both of them in the fake seance act, but money was tight. and That's true. You know, the whole haunted house trope that money's tight. So it yeah. made sense to me that she suddenly got this uh, ace in the hole with a daughter who really can uh, speak, um, channel the dead. And so she's keeping her home from school for a few days to, <laughs> to like, make some money, make establish some, money, yeah. some business, spread the word. Sure, uh, sure. I bought into it. Okay, yeah, 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 for financial reasons, that makes sense. Um, right. Thematically, did you pick up on uh, anything like, uh, I feel like uh, uh, alcoholism was touched on here a little bit? Oh, um, uh, where did they touch on that? I can't remember. Uh, well, the dad is killed by a drunk driver. Um, oh. When they go to the party, like there's a scene where uh, she goes to her, uh, Lena goes to her friend's house and they're making comments about how their parents are like, oh, it was drunk, smell like coffee, right? Oh, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know if he was like pointing to something there. Uh, and the priest was hiding at some point, like they mentioned that you're hiding behind a collar. I was wondering if that's like what his past was, if he's done something. Um, there was obviously loss, right? Like you have the two widows, right? With the, with the main uh, character, the mother and the priest. Yeah, for sure. And loss is a is a common theme in some of his movies. Now that I think about it, yeah. And um, he he's an alcoholic, Mike Flanagan. Did you know mm, that? I didn't, but that explains a lot. I feel like that yeah. shows up in like every film of his, every work. Yeah, so good catch on that. And then um, he did grow up Catholic, so 
Um, that might be part of the, the priest thing and the hiding behind the collar. Um, I don't think he considers himself Catholic anymore. That's not a quote from him. That's just the perception I get. Okay. Um, Interesting. So, yeah. Yeah, that explains that. And then there's a lot of scenes where the TV's on in the background and they were talking about going to the moon. Uh, did you pick up on that and any idea how that connects to the plot? Uh, I assumed it was just like the time period that it took place. Um, okay. But yeah, it, I thought this was the 70s. It was, huh. yeah. So like, yeah, that space race I thought they went on. to the moon in 69. I can't remember. Oh. Yeah, I think you're right. It was like the late 60s. That's interesting. Well, I mean, that we supposedly went to the moon. I mean, that's... <laughs> Here we go again. I can't... <laughs> yeah. That's for another conversation. Uh, I, well, I think... Yeah. It, guys, I'll talk to him in private. I don't think he actually thinks this, but leave it to me. I'll handle it. I don't think you actually think we landed on the moon. Like, I, I think deep down you know what the truth is here. <laughs> I, I said we'll handle it offline, Austin. <laughs> right. We'll come to consensus. And I'll, I'll bring the Ouija board so we, we can put an end to this conversation. <laughs> Did we land on the moon? Yeah. The Ouija board goes to yes and just closes itself, <laughs> smacks you on the face, exactly. goes back into its box. Uh, all right, cool. Um, any, anything else that you picked up on in this film you want to call it before we jump to the rating? Uh, I don't know. I don't. I think that's about all I have to say. Like, I think part of the reason there's not much to say is it's a, a pretty standard movie. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Give me a, give me a rating scale. All right, one to five. Oh man! Oh yeah, one to five possessed kids running around on the ceiling. I give it four out of five possessed kids running around on the ceiling. Mm, nice. I okay. think it is just uh, like a popcorn movie. You know, a, a popcorn generic haunted house movie that is done much better than the typical popcorn generic haunted house movie. It's got some level of craft and thought and heart to it that sets it apart from the rest. So, yeah, right. I give it a four out of five. I enjoyed it. What did you give it? Same, man. I, I was stuck between a four and a half and a four, but then I, I, th I think that ending uh, kind of muddled things up a bit, and then I wasn't a fan of the CGI monsters, but I thought everything else, you're right, like was like a notch above uh, typical horror films, those good performances, great cinematography, good imagery, uh, and I thought they nailed like the 70s feel and like the little things that they did to make it feel like an old-timey film. Uh, so yeah, for uh, Possessed Kids on the Ceiling. Okay, that is higher than I thought you would give it based on some of the critiques you had about it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think overall it was, it was, it was a fun and, and watchable film and get a good time. I think the CGI wasn't so bad. It, it didn't look great when and that scene we talked about in the mirror when there's the big mm -hmm. demon that reaches into her mouth, but... From then on, like her creepy faces and stuff, I didn't think it was egregious. I, I thought it was blended oh, yeah. in fairly seamlessly most of the time. I agree. I, I liked her face. I think the the two parts were uh, the three parts that bothered me is yeah that mirror one with the demon. The one time where she opens her mouth and there's like an eyeball in it, uh, like oh, a yellow I don't remember eye. That. Oh, there's like a yellow eye of like Sauron uh, staring out at like uh, Lena at one point, um, and then all those demons that kind of pop up at the end to like do something i think like they're pulling at lena or something okay uh, yeah i don't remember that part very well either so it, it perhaps it was bad and i blocked it out okay yeah yeah uh but yeah i i feel like i, I agree like when, when her facial expressions and like when her eyes would go white and her mouth would open i thought that was like really cool cool awesome well anything else you want to add i think that's about it all right well 
that is going to wrap our episode up for Ouija Origins of Evil. If you enjoyed the episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and that's going to help other people find our show, and we always appreciate the feedback. If you want to join our discussion, you can find our social links on horrormovieclub.com. You can shoot us an email at podcast at horrormovie.com. We will be announcing next week's movie on Facebook and on Twitter in case you want to watch it before the next episode. We're also on Discord, where uh, we're chatting up with a few other horror fans. So it's a great community out there that uh, you should check out and join if you like horror films. That link is on our website. Our logo is done by Amy May Pop Art, so check her out on Etsy.com. Until next time, if, if a demon is whispering in your ear that there are three R's in the word repertoire, it may be tempting to walk upstairs and immediately hang yourself, but just shake it off. You can do it. And, and take another shot at pronouncing that word. <laughs> Stick with it. Yeah, <laughs> don't give up. <laughs> we'll get there.